Well, hey, good morning, Plum Creek. I want to welcome all of you here, and right away, I want to give a big thanks to our middle school and high school students who helped to lead us in our worship service this morning. Didn't those guys do a great job? Yeah, I love to see young people stepping up to serve, and actually, that's the theme today, is serving. As you saw in that video, this is Plum Creek's weekend of serving, so for the past couple of days, uh, we've had all kinds of people reaching out to show compassion across northern Kentucky and greater Cincinnati, and if you were one of those volunteers, I want to say thanks to you as well. It is a great thing for the church to get out into the community and make a positive difference in the name of Jesus. It's also a great thing to just serve next to each other and build relationships inside the church and outside the church. Yesterday morning, my family was with Steve and Rebecca Jenkins. We were up in Cincinnati and we packed meals that will be sent to hungry children over in South Sudan, and we had a great time doing that. And if I had to guess, I'd say that most people, most people anywhere, have experienced that good feeling that you get from serving somebody. There there is something just satisfying about doing good for others. And you don't have to be a Christian to get that good feeling. The truth is, just about everyone is willing to serve somebody sometimes. That comes pretty naturally for people but it doesn't come naturally to serve like Jesus. And that's the goal that we have here at Plum Creek. Uh, For example, let's put the name of our event up on the screen, The Weekend of Serving. Now, what does that title tell you? It tells you that we have set aside a specific time to be intentional about serving others. It's a special event. But what about last weekend? And what about next weekend? You know, for Plum Creek, serving others should not be limited to a special event. And if we're going to follow the pattern of Jesus, this has got to be a lifestyle. Now, we're in the middle of a series called Habits. And in this series, we're looking at several spiritual disciplines, and we're trying to turn these disciplines into habits. So now, let's put another title up on the screens here. Let's put habit of serving next to weekend of serving. And you, you see the difference there between those two. You know, we said that the weekend of serving, we're setting aside a special time. It's a special occasion, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But let's make sure we don't get confused. Followers of Jesus should take the habit of serving into every situation, whoever we're with, uh, wherever we are. And that, my friends, is where this gets challenging. For most of us, it's difficult to be ready to serve absolutely anybody at absolutely any time. In fact, that sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? Well, I don't know how you feel about this, but I need to tell you something. The path of following Jesus, it is extreme. When you read the Bible, you don't have to look very far to find Jesus saying some pretty outlandish things. For instance... Look at this statement from the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 10, verse 43, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
Now, I want to make sure that statement sinks in. So let's go back and let's read it again. Everybody together, out loud. Can we do that? Here we go. Loud and strong. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, I want to ask a serious question about that quote from Jesus. When you really take in those words, which are pretty extreme, I want to ask, do we believe this? Do we really believe that the path to greatness means becoming a slave to everyone? Who in this room is ready to sign up for that? I mean, if you went to a job interview and that's the position that was offered, how would you respond? Picture it. The the interviewer says, okay, I want to tell you a little about who we're looking for. Number one, uh, we need you to be a slave. That means your time is not your own. Your, your life is not your own. You're basically giving up your freedom. And the second thing, you won't be a slave for just one or two people. We need you to be a slave to everyone. I know that may sound strange, but that's what we're looking for, a slave of all. What would you say in that interview? And I promise I'm not being flippant here. I'm, I'm asking a sincere question. What do you do with this quote from Jesus? You got a couple options. Do you think he was exaggerating? Would you come up to me and say, now Doug, Jesus can't possibly mean that we should be a slave to everyone. And yeah, that sounds good, except he did say it. So then what do you do? What's your other option? Was Jesus just telling us to do something that is very difficult or humiliating? I mean, what does it even look like to be a slave to everyone? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Well, I don't know what you normally do with challenging parts of the Bible. Sometimes it's, it's easy to just skip right past these things. It's easy to say, you know, I don't see how that verse can make sense. So I'll just fall back on what makes sense for me and what works. But you know, that's a serious problem for those of us who believe that the Bible is God's word. If we have a conviction that Scripture is really God's message to us, and that's exactly what we believe here at Plum Creek, then we can't just skip to the easy parts or ignore the difficult parts or the parts we just don't like. We need to be humble and say, God, I'm willing to let you tell me something that I don't want to hear. Now, when you run across a difficult passage, one of the best things you can do is interpret Scripture with Scripture. Uh, It can be dangerous to take just one verse and build a whole worldview out of it. Uh, People have done that in the past, and they've twisted the Bible to say all kinds of crazy things. So it's very wise to look at other passages that can shed light on a challenging topic. So let's try that. Let's back up just one chapter and see what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9. Mark 9.35 says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So what do we learn here? Well, first, even though this verse has slightly different wording, it's a very similar idea to the other passage we read, right? So we know this isn't just some obscure teaching that Jesus said only once. It's a principle that he taught repeatedly. And and that leads us to the belief that this is pretty important. 
It really looks like Jesus expected his followers to live out this principle. And since that's the case, let's try to make sense of this, specifically the Mark 9 verse. Can you think, in your experience, of of any person that you've seen who has risen to greatness by choosing to be last, by choosing to serve others? Well, it's kind of interesting. There are lots of examples of this. I thought of one. Uh, There's an author named Simon Sinek who wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last. And uh, when Sinek was working on this book, he interviewed General George Flynn. General Flynn is retired from the U.S. Marine Corps. And in, in this interview, Sinek had kind of an aha moment that led to the title of this book. And here's what happened. He came to General Flynn and he asked, what makes the Marines' leadership style so unique? And Flynn said, it's pretty simple, really. The officers eat last. And it's true. All over the world, when Marines line up to get their food, the lower ranks eat first, and the officers willingly sacrifice that privilege. That's not normal. That procedure is is not in a, a Marine handbook somewhere. It's just how things are done in that particular branch of the military. And it's remarkable That behavior helps to build the tight-knit community in the Marine Corps. It it helps to build an environment where the soldiers choose to trust their leaders, and the whole group is learning to trust their lives to each other. So isn't that interesting? Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. And yeah, that sounds crazy on the surface, but right here in the Marines... We have a real-life example where that practice plays out exactly how Jesus described it. Those officers are are building a healthy culture partially by choosing to be last. So that's Mark 9. Let's go back to Mark 10, and, and let's try to figure out what Jesus is looking for when he asks his followers to be the slave of all. Well, when we try to understand the Bible, it's a good idea to let Scripture interpret with Scripture. We were just trying to do that. But it's also good to get the context. And when we read from Mark chapter 10 earlier, we didn't read even two full verses. So let's back up and get the context. What was happening when Jesus said what he said? Well, starting with verse 32 of Mark 10, it says... They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So now this is pretty straightforward. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and he gives a prediction about his death and about his resurrection. He knew what was going to happen, and he repeatedly would tell his disciples about this. He he would let them know, you know, about his death, about his suffering, about his resurrection. But on this particular occasion, he gets extremely specific. I don't know how he could have been much clearer than that. But you know, the disciples were often very slow to understand Jesus when he made these kinds of predictions. 
And we shouldn't be too hard on them because I'm not sure we would have been any less clueless. But having said that, these disciples were amazingly clueless. <laughs> Listen to the very next thing that happens, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they asked, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, come on, guys. Can you say rude? I, Jesus has just shared this personal information explaining how he's going to suffer and die. And you know that that's just weighing on his heart. But James and John, they jump in and they're like, yeah, Jesus, we're not sure what you're talking about, but uh, we have a question for you. Could you do us a really big favor? And the next verse is pretty solid proof that I don't have the patience of Jesus. Because Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now, a lot of times, Peter is the disciple with the reputation for saying something idiotic. But we can see here that James and John are also in that club. Uh, but Jesus continues to be patient. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. James and John, these guys are killing me. Uh, they have no idea what they're talking about, yet they keep talking. Uh, my kids do that sometimes. Um, they can be extremely confident about something they know nothing about. And when it's not maddening, it can be kind of funny. Um, but what is Jesus talking about here? What's the cup in this baptism? Well, with both of those images, Jesus is bringing up an idea that was common in the Old Testament. Drinking a cup was often a reference to suffering, especially suffering as a result of God's wrath. And then this image of baptism is used here in a similar way, like when we talk about being baptized by fire. So he's saying that Jesus is saying he, he would endure suffering as a result of God's wrath. Well, when would that happen? That would happen at the crucifixion, right? Because God has a righteous anger against sin because he's totally good. He has to be angry at sin because it's so wrong. And then someone has to be punished as a result of our sin. All of us have sinned. All of us deserve the punishment of death. But Jesus willingly took that punishment on himself. He died so that we might live. And James and John so confidently said, sure, we can drink that cup. Like I said, they, they were clueless. But Jesus knew they would actually have their own cup to drink because those disciples would later go through persecution or even die for their faith. Look at verse 39. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Okay, so now the rest of the disciples are drawn into this discussion, and none of them really grasp what Jesus is talking about. Uh, he's, he's speaking on this level up here, and, and they're down on this lower level, just arguing about who's going to be the most important when Jesus hands out positions in his kingdom. So you know what a moment like this is called? This is called a teachable moment. 
And Jesus really wants his disciples to understand that his kingdom is very, very different than the normal kingdoms in this world. God's way of doing things looks upside down to most people. And so Jesus takes advantage of this opportunity, this teachable moment. And we're almost back to the verses we started with. Let's pick it up at verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So finally... We have context for that statement of Jesus. He didn't just give a command that his followers should be slaves. Jesus made that statement in the middle of describing his own purpose and his own identity. He's not just giving out instructions. He is setting the example. He's about to show the whole world what it means to be a servant, what it means to be a slave of all. And this concept is truly mind-blowing because what did Jesus actually deserve? No one in history was more deserving to be served and worshipped and adored. And Jesus could have demanded that kind of treatment. He had every right to demand it. But Jesus laid down his rights. He laid down his own life. And why? Well, we just read it. He did that as a ransom for many. Now, in New Testament times, the word ransom was often used when a slave was released into freedom. Someone had to buy freedom for a slave, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He bought our freedom by paying with his own life. He became the ultimate servant by making the ultimate sacrifice, and that's the context here. Followers of Jesus are called to live out the example of Jesus. He served us. So we should serve him and serve others, and not just occasionally. We should serve as a habit. See, here's the principle that Jesus is teaching. Serving is not just an action for followers of Jesus, an occasional behavior. It's an identity. And just like Jesus drank that big cup of self-denial when he went to the cross, all of us who are his disciples, we have our own little cups to drink. And we don't live to be served. We live to serve. And that's true wherever we are, with family, with friends, strangers, or even enemies. We live to serve. Serving is the path to greatness. So let's go back to the verses we read originally. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, We've talked a lot about this, and I think we can come to terms with the identity of a servant. That one, it it kind of makes sense, Um, because anyone who participated in the weekend of serving, anyone who knows the good feeling that we get from serving others, anyone who sees the positive difference we can make in the world when we serve, we understand this. Uh, We can recognize that it's a noble goal to become a servant, to develop this habit of serving but I'm not quite ready to leave this verse. Because of those last three words, something inside me keeps asking, Jesus, did you have to use the word slave? I think most of us have this primitive impulse inside that just 
hates the idea of being a slave. I mean, you could walk into just about any room and take a quick poll to say, hey, by a show of hands, could you answer this question? Is slavery a good thing or a bad thing? Who's going to raise their hand and say slavery is a good thing? Haven't we decided it's bad? So then why does Jesus use this word? Especially when he died to purchase our freedom from slavery to sin and death. How does this make sense? Well, this could be a long and interesting discussion, but I've been wrestling with this, and and I want to summarize just a few things I've learned. First, we need to talk about the understanding of the word slave in New Testament times. In those days, the experience of slavery was different than what you see in the early days of the United States leading up to the Civil War. In this verse, the original Greek word for slave is the word doulos. And according to Bible scholars, uh, the word doulos could best be described as a bond servant. That's someone who was bound to serve a master, usually for a lengthy period of time. But a bond servant also had the opportunity to own property or advance in society and, and even be released or possibly purchase their own freedom. The fact remains, though, even in New Testament times, a bondservant was still a slave owned by someone else. And, man, the, the, that word slave, it just has a very, very negative connotation for us. But remember that, bondservant is a little different than what we may think of. But we should also be clear about what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that we should just place ourselves at the mercy and the whims of everyone we encounter. Uh, Think about it from the perspective of a parent. As a dad, should I be the slave of my kids? That just doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't sound uh, healthy or productive. But remember, this idea of slavery here is directly tied to the idea of being a servant. And a servant is someone who meets the needs of others. So now, if I end up waiting on my kids hand and foot, cleaning their rooms and picking up everything they drop on the floor, am I meeting their needs? Well, actually, I'm not, am I? I'm robbing them of the opportunity to learn the important lesson of personal responsibility. So if I'm going to be a true servant for my kids, I need to step up as a dad and train them to be responsible and pick up their own messes because developing that part of their character will serve them well in the years to come. So we've made a couple disclaimers here. Uh, The word slave does not imply the horrific associations we may have in our minds, and the word slave does not mean we should wait on everyone hand and foot with no awareness of their true needs. But even with those disclaimers, Jesus did use the word slave, and we got to deal with it. So with that in mind, I'll give you just a few quick points. First, as much as we don't like this, everyone is a slave to something or someone. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul spells this out very clearly. He's writing to a group of Christians, and he says, All of you used to be slaves to sin. And that sin was killing you. But then a dramatic change took place. In Romans 6, 22, Paul writes, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So do you see the choice? Everyone will either be a slave to sin or a slave to God. 
We may not like to think about it that way, but it's the truth. And the great news is this. Becoming a slave to God brings true freedom. We just saw it there. The benefit leads to holiness and eternal life. But then if I'm a slave to God, why do I also need to be a slave to other people? Well, Paul sums this up very well over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is pretty amazing. Listen to this. Paul writes, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So Paul gets it. He figures out how it makes sense to be completely free, belonging to no one, and yet at the same time, a slave to everyone. And in the context of this verse, Paul is talking about leading others to Jesus, uh, making disciples, evangelism. And so here's what Paul did. He chose to give up his own freedom to serve others by leading them to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. You see the strategy? Paul did what Jesus has called all of his followers to do. Jesus calls Christians to use our freedom to become the slave of all. So for me personally this week, it's been a fascinating journey to dig into this teaching of Jesus. And even now, there is so much more to learn about serving the way Jesus did. But I do want to make sure we get very practical before we're done here. We should all understand how serving like Jesus is different than what comes naturally to us. After all, uh, we already said, you don't have to be a Christian to serve others or enjoy serving. So in practical terms, what's the difference? Well, in a book called Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster warns that it is very easy for a self-centered, self-righteous approach to creep into our serving. We're all tempted to serve for selfish reasons, but that is not the spirit of Christ-like serving. So I took some of Foster's comments and adapted them and made a short list of distinctions between self-righteous serving and Christ-like serving. First, self-righteous serving needs rewards, and those rewards may be external, like wanting someone to notice you or congratulate you for your service. The rewards may also be internal, like wanting to feel significant or wanting to feel needed. Uh, Christ-like serving, though, it's different. It's content to be hidden. And that's a, a real test, isn't it? Are we still willing to serve if no one notices or we don't receive some personal reward? Well, here's another distinction. Self-righteous serving picks and chooses who to serve because we're perfectly happy to, to serve someone we like or someone we think of as deserving, but we've all got a list of people we'd prefer not to serve. However, Christ-like serving is not selective. And if you have any doubts about this, you can go to the Gospel of John chapter 13. That's where you read the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And that's one of the most vivid examples of Jesus as a humble servant. Servant. But that story is even more powerful when you realize who was in the room that night. Judas Iscariot was in the room. And just minutes before Judas left to betray Jesus, with Jesus knowing full well what Judas was about to do, Jesus washed his feet anyway. And what a challenging example. But let's keep moving. Self-righteous serving is affected by moods. 
Sometimes we feel like serving. Sometimes we don't. But Christ-like serving acts just because there is a need. It's as simple as that. Now, here's one we've alluded to already. Uh, Self-righteous serving is temporary. Because sure, I, I can show up for a special event, but then, yeah, I'd prefer to go back to taking care of myself. But Christ-like serving is a lifestyle. It's an identity that you carry into every situation. You go to work with the mindset of serving. You come to church with the mindset of serving. You parent or, or you uh, approach your marriage with the mindset of serving. In other words, it's a habit. But let's be honest. Doesn't that seem a little exhausting? How can anyone keep that up all day, every day? The truth is, we can't. We don't have the ability or the strength to maintain that level of selflessness. So here's the last distinction I'll point out. Self-righteous serving comes from human power. And Christ-like serving comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus doesn't give us these impossible commands and then wait for us to fail. He first sets the example by living out what he teaches and then he empowers us to follow his instructions. That's what the Holy Spirit does for every follower of Christ. He will give you the strength to do what you don't have the strength to do. Through the Spirit, I know it is possible to develop the habit of serving. I know that because I've seen it. I've been on the receiving end of the blessings that come from faithful Christians using their freedom to serve others. And chances are you've been on the receiving end of those blessings too. So I thought this may be a good way to wrap up this message today. I'd like each of us to answer this question. Who has been a Christ-like servant in your life? Who has given up their own freedom to bless you? I thought about that question this week, and so many people came to mind. I, I thought about my parents, of course, uh, because they served me and sacrificed in so many ways. Uh, they were especially intentional about serving in a way that would lead me to Jesus, and I am forever grateful for that. I also remembered teachers and mentors who have poured into me and made such a powerful difference in my life. And then I remembered a lot of little acts of service, uh, things that just encouraged me or brought me joy. For example, this week, uh, someone dropped off some fresh asparagus on our front porch. And you know who you are, and it was delicious. Thank you very much. But as I look back on the many Christ-like servants who have been a blessing in my life, there's one person I wanted to mention by name. And that's Pauline Collier. Before this week, I, I don't think I've told anyone about this. But for my first few years here at Plum Creek, Pauline made it a habit to send me an encouraging email about the sermon. She did this very consistently. She just went out of her way to say something positive. I keep an archive of all my emails, and I went back and I looked this week. I have over a hundred from Pauline. Now, did I deserve all of those? Trust me, I did not. <laughs> not every sermon is a home run, and I know I've preached some clunkers over the years. But it's very moving to me that Pauline went out of her way to serve me with those encouraging words. 
she's not in a place where she can do that today. But I'm still inspired by her example. I'm inspired to look around and see who God has placed in my life. Who can I encourage? Who can I serve? Who can I bless by taking on the identity of a servant? That's what Jesus would do. That's what Jesus actually did. And then he passed that responsibility on to me with a promise that he'll give me the strength to follow those instructions. He'll do the same thing for you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the example of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, it's such a high bar. It's perfection. And Lord, we don't have the ability to make the right choice every time, to resist every temptation, to show love and compassion in every situation. We don't have that in ourselves. But God, I know that uh, you make it possible for us to follow the example, to take on the identity of a servant, to let this world know what you're like by the way we live. God, I pray that you'll help us to do that as a church, as families, as individuals. Help us to serve, not in a self-centered or self-righteous way, but in a Christ-like way. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.